The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight on WABC. I'm Frank Morano. If there's one thing that I've sought to do on this show with every single issue that we talk about, it's try to present as many different points of view as possible, even if those points of view are unorthodox or unreasonable or by some people's estimation outlandish, especially when there's really only one view that is coming out of the mainstream news media. And I think a good example of the coverage that we've done in that respect, is on an issue that is pretty important to everybody in the world, particularly if you're in North America, particularly if you're in Europe, but really on any continent, and that is the war that's going on between Russia and Ukraine. And in my continuing efforts to try and present all sorts of view, we've had a lot of people on this show who have been... Uh, for lack of a better description, pretty sympathetic to the Russian cause and uh, pretty quick to offer explanations and maybe even some excuses for Vladimir Putin. Now, I have gotten an earful from folks that said, all right, Frank, we get it. We get that you're trying to be balanced, but how about you show an expert that has actually some reasons to back up the standard narrative of what's happening in Ukraine? Well, boy, oh boy, do we have an expert for you. Dr. Charles Kupchan is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and a professor of international affairs at uh, Georgetown University. He also is a veteran of the Obama White House. Hello, Dr. Kupchan. Thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Very happy to be with you. So one of the things that we've heard a great deal from the people that have a, a different view on the conflict in Russia and, and or the conflict in Ukraine than you do is that somehow NATO and the United States provoked this by a number of different actions, including helping precipitate the uh, the coup in Ukraine, which led to the toppling of Viktor Yanukovych. Even the Pope uh, sort of intimated as much uh, recently. Why is that view of Russian aggression in Ukraine flawed? It's flawed because what happened in 2014 is that the Ukrainians decided to affiliate with Europe, to build a trading relationship with Europe. They wanted to look west. Yanukovych gets wooed by Putin, and he says, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to stay with Mother Russia, uh, where we've been for quite a long while. And there's a popular uprising. It's called the Maidan Revolution. People take to the streets largely peaceful until the regime starts killing, shooting people that are peacefully protesting. And ultimately, Yanukovych flees to Russia. There is a peaceful transition of power. There is a free and fair election. And a pro-Western government comes in. And Putin says, I don't like this. This is not very good for me. So what does he do? He grabs Crimea and illegally annexes it to Russia, and then he fosters a populist uprising or separatist uprising in what's called Donbass, a section of eastern Ukraine that is heavily Russified. 
Doctor, was this, you know, a coup carried out by the United States? That's nuts. So speaking of the Donbass region, that's the other thing that we've heard from, I don't want to use the term Putin apologists, but those that have a different view of the Ukraine-Russia situation than what you and the president and what uh, leading policymakers on both sides in Washington have, is uh, that the ethnic Russians in Donbass were being charitably phrased mistreated by the ukrainian government and what we've heard from some of the people there some of the people fighting with the rebels in the donbass region is that they were actually being killed by the ukrainian-backed government even though they want uh, no part of the ukrainian government they want to be closer to russia why is that excuse for this invasion flawed well you know if if you and i had had this conversation 15 years ago i would have said that there are Russian sympathizers, Russian speakers, a lot of folks who live in eastern Ukraine that feel more Russian than they do Ukrainian. They watch Russian TV. They speak Russian at home. They don't, in some cases, know Ukrainian. But the country has changed, especially after 2014, when Putin created a strong national identity around Ukrainian history, Ukrainian language. And then in uh, the aftermath of the Russian invasion, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church breaks with the Russian Orthodox Church. And so there has been a peeling away year by year of Ukrainians from their affinity for Russia and the Russian language. Right now, there are 44 million angry Ukrainians who want nothing to do with Russia. The other thing that we hear from Putin a great deal is that uh, part of the goal here was denazification, the coziness that uh, the uh, Zelensky government has with groups like uh, the Azov Battalion has caused a lot of consternation in some quarters. What's the what's the truth, as you see it, with respect to the Nazification of the Zelensky government? Are there far-right activists in Ukraine? Yes. Are there neo-Nazis in Ukraine? Yes. How many? I don't know, a few thousand. Is that regiment that you mentioned a a kind of place where far-right folks gather? Yes. Is that in any way characterization uh, of the larger Ukrainian government? No. You know, Ukraine has a Jewish president, recently had a Jewish prime minister, Jewish life in Ukraine is coming back. It's it's nothing like a, a, a country run by neo-Nazis. That's absurd. You know, if there's one argument that Putin makes that I think does bear a certain resemblance to reality, it is the objections to NATO enlargement. And this goes back to the 1990s when the Cold War ended NATO started taking in members from the former Warsaw Pact, gets closer and closer to the Russian border. And then in 2008, NATO says, we're, we're going to bring in Ukraine and we're going to bring in Georgia. Uh, I think that probably was a bridge too far and in some ways gave Putin an excuse for a land grab. So if there's any argument that I hear from the Russians that it has any merit whatsoever, I think it is 
legitimate for them to be uncomfortable with NATO getting closer and closer to their borders. If people just tuning in, we're talking with Dr. Charles Kupchan. He's a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, a veteran of the Obama administration, and a professor of international affairs at Georgetown University. Speaking of uh, NATO expansion, it looks like NATO is going to get a bit larger with uh, Finland and Sweden poised to join. And uh, that would seem to actually mean that uh, Putin's goal of limiting NATO expansion by invading Ukraine has sort of backfired because it actually led to greater expansion of NATO. Uh, But when a country joins NATO, I know you're aware, but the audience may not be, they're obliged under Article 5, if one of them is attacked, to pledge to come to their defense. In, In your view... How does America benefit from the continuing expansion of NATO? Putting aside uh, what legitimate gripes Russia may have, do you think the United States stands to gain from a bigger and more expansive NATO? I think that that's an easy question to answer when it comes to Finland and Sweden, because they are fairly large, militarily capable countries that bring a lot of geopolitical weight to the alliance. NATO is going to be a lot stronger with Finland and Sweden in it than with Finland and Sweden outside it. And I think that, you know, the key word that that I want to come back to in your question, Frank, is backfire. I mean, this invasion of Ukraine has just backfired in so many different respects, right? Mm. He tries Putin to go into Kiev and topple the government, doesn't work. He's trying to weaken NATO. Guess what? NATO is deploying all of these forces on its eastern flank. Russia is looking at a long border with Finland, which is about to join NATO. Uh, So uh, instead of kind of weakening Ukraine, chopping it up, making uh, NATO pull back and get weaker, the opposite has happened. This really is Uh, a gambit that has blown up in Putin's face. And even in Russia, even in Russia, you are seeing a lot of opposition and heartache about this war. You don't see a scenario in which uh, the Russians will actually ultimately surrender control of Crimea, do you? No, no. My best guess uh, is that this is a war that will soon look more like a stalemate in which the Russians stop trying to take more and more land. The Ukrainians don't make much success in fighting back. And when we get to that point, I think there there are two possible outcomes. One is that we just turn to what's called a frozen conflict, where the border stays hostile, violent, and it just drags on for years. The second would be a negotiation, some kind of territorial settlement in which there is a reckoning uh, of of this territory that's contested in the in the east. I just don't think that Ukraine has the combat power to expel Russia from its territory. You know, going on offense is a lot tougher than being on defense. Once Russia has dug into Donbass, 
it's going to be hard to get them out. Well, so let's talk about how the war is actually going. It seems like early on uh, the Ukrainian military really exceeded a lot of analysts' expectations of what was supposed to be a pretty lopsided conflict. Uh, These days, it seems like uh, the Russians may have made a bit more headway militarily. What do you see as the current state of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine? Is Russia winning? Is Ukraine winning? Or is it getting closer and closer to what you described as a sort of a stalemate? Well, the the Russians have clearly changed the goalposts. They started off going after the government in Kyiv. They're now looking at taking a slice out of eastern Ukraine. And then who knows? Maybe a year, maybe two, they may go after Odessa. Maybe they'll go back and try to take Kiev. We don't know. But at least in terms of the disposition of forces, the Russians are really focused on these two oblasts or, or provinces, we would call them in English, that have historically been more Russified. They've almost got control of one of them. They're not close to having control of the second? Do they try to get to the borders of the province? I think it's it's too soon to tell. But, you know, I worry about uh, uh, several different things. One is the Ukrainians are getting ground down. You know, we're talking somewhere around 200 plus soldiers lost a day. Uh, they're not making a lot of military progress. They may say, you know what, the longer this war goes on, the more deaths and the more territory we will lose. And the other thing that worries me is how this war is blowing back here at home. You know, uh, I was driving home last night from Georgetown, and I passed the gas station, and it was like five seventy a gallon. Mm. Uh, I've got six people in my house, a bunch of kids and a wife. Uh, i got to go to the grocery store every few days. And every few days, the eggs, the bread, the milk, things are going up. And I do worry that over time, the strong resolve that Americans have demonstrated, that Germans have demonstrated, that could wane. And, you know, look at Germany. They're looking at the prospect of gas rationing. They may not be able to heat their homes in November. They may not be able to keep their factories running. So from this perspective as well, I think it's time to start talking about a ceasefire and bringing this war to an end. Well, I mean, that seems to make a lot of sense from everybody's perspective. You have Russians dying. You have uh, Ukrainians that are dying. You have the whole world experiencing not only a a global inflation crisis, especially when it comes to energy prices, but also a global supply chain crisis. Should America be a little bit more willing and enthusiastic about pursuing a diplomatic end to this rather than, as we saw, especially early in the conflict, American officials essentially bragging about how they weren't speaking with their Russian counterparts. Should America be trying to mediate an end to this dispute diplomatically? To date, the Biden folks have said we're we're not going to go there. They've said, you know, this is a war that's being fought by Ukrainians, for Ukrainian territory. We will back them to the hilt. And then Zelensky says, we're going to defend every inch of our territory. We will win. Uh, I think that that's not a tenable position Mm -hmm. because I don't think the Ukrainians can win. 
And I'm guessing that we are almost at a pivot point where you're starting to see Ukrainians talk about winding this war down and when Biden may begin to pivot and talk about a ceasefire and diplomacy. He's getting a lot of pressure to do that from Europeans, from the Germans, from the French, from the Italians. The U.S. has not yet made that move, at least publicly, but I do think that I do think it's coming. And, and again, let's keep a close eye on the domestic situation here. You know, as we get close to the midterms, I worry that the bipartisanship on this issue that we've seen is going to start to fray and that the uh, the America first Republicans are going to start raising their voices. And I would point out that in the Ohio primary for the Senate, J.D. Vance Senate, ran on this Vance, issue. Yeah. Right. What's his position on Ukraine? I could care less. Before I let you go, and I appreciate you being so generous with your time, you brought up energy prices. This was one of the issues that they dealt with at the G7 summit in uh, in Europe this week. And it looks like one of the solutions that the G7 leaders were pretty close to adopting was to implement some sort of a, a cap on what Russians would be able to sell a barrel of oil for. Now, obviously, if the G7 countries want to agree to sort of a gentleman's agreement that they don't pay more than X for a barrel of Russian oil, uh, who's to stop them? But is that kind of a cap really enforceable if Russia is going to sell oil to countries that aren't part of the G7? It's a great question, and we don't know the answer to it yet. You know, the way this works, as far as I can tell, is you say to the Russians, to the shippers, to other countries, okay, the price of oil is now $115 a barrel. We will not pay more than $80 a barrel for Russian oil, and you shouldn't either. Now, is everybody going to abide by that? Are the Indians? Are the Chinese? Right? The Indians are now buying large amounts of Russian oil at a discount. They may not want to play ball with the G7. Another thing that could happen is that the Russians could say, no, we're not going to sell you oil for $80 a barrel. In fact, we're going to turn off the spigot. What would then happen? The price of oil would go from 115 to 130. So it's very difficult to predict how this is going to play out. I think it's worth a shot. Am I optimistic that it's going to work and we're going to get Russian oil onto international markets at low prices? I have my doubts. Mm. Uh, lastly, in a similar vein, the president President Biden has been making a big issue of sanctions, instituting further sanctions on Russia. And uh, one of the things that we saw early on was the value of the Russian ruble just crater. Now, apparently, the value of the ruble is higher than it's been in the last eight years. What effect do you think these sanctions are actually having, either from an economic perspective or in terms of getting Putin to change his behavior? Well, they are taking a toll economically, and they will take a bigger bite over time. One aspect that's important here is bans on technology exports to Russia. Anything that has an American component in it, whether it's not a made in America or not, let's say a semiconductor that could be used in weapons or in phones, those, are, those aren't going in. 
And that over time is going to wreak havoc in certain sectors of the Russian economy. Things will be harder to find. But you're right to point out that what's happened so far is that they haven't, these sanctions haven't really worked. And part of the reason they haven't worked is because even though the volume of oil sold by Russia has gone down, prices have gotten so high that they're still earning mm. ample revenue. Uh, and so the, the bottom line is these are sanctions that hurt. Are they hurting him enough to change his mind? No. What's really going to make a difference? I would say the situation on the battlefield in Ukraine, whether Putin thinks he can claim victory and whether he thinks he can get some kind of diplomatic deal that would allow him to save face and say to the Russian people, hey, this was a win. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Charles Kupchan. He's a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and a professor at Georgetown University. Enjoyed the discussion very much. I hope we can do it again soon. Thank you for having me on. I enjoyed it. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. 